I'm Sabrina Oliveros. And I'm Anne Monk. You may know us from San Francisco Maritime National Historical Park's podcast, Better Lives, Bitter Lies. In that series, we trace events and ideas that shaped the lives of people who arrived at the San Francisco waterfront in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Today, we're shifting gears and introducing the first episode of a new series, where we get to know people who preserve and pass on maritime history in the present. This new podcast is called Two Mics Before the Mast, and if that sounds like a maritime literary reference to you, it is. Before the Mast refers to the forecastle, or the quarters of common sailors in the front of a ship. Life there was famously chronicled by Richard Henry Dana Jr. in his wildly popular memoir, Two Years Before the Mast. In 1834, 19-year-old Dana of Cambridge, Massachusetts, was afflicted by the measles which affected his eyesight. Hoping fresh air and time away from his studies would heal him, he joined the crew of a merchant ship in Boston, which eventually found its way around Cape Horn to San Francisco. Many things have changed since Dana first set foot on the Pilgrim, but the hard work and dedication needed to keep a boat afloat, or a fleet of historic vessels afloat, hasn't. For this series, we'll be interviewing our fellow crewmates, the rangers, riggers, carpenters, librarians, and so many more job titles, (laughs) true, whose work often finds them before the public as well as the mast. We've already released a special episode talking with our resident shantyman and former ranger, Peter Kaysen. You can catch that on the park's website and iTunes. Today, we'll continue with an interview with not one, but two maritime park staff, or both named Josh. Two Mike's, two Joshes? <laughs> Josh Brown is a shipwright, and Josh Payne, a rigger. We'll learn more about what they do for the park, how they got here, and why they do what they do. But first, here's one quick and simple way of differentiating them. As a shipwright, Josh Brown's job is to build or repair a boat. And as a rigger, since rigging refers to the ropes and cables that support a ship's mass, and which control its yards and sails, Josh Payne's job is to make sure the boat moves. And together, both of them make sure it doesn't sink. (laughs) And both of them should probably be the ones elaborating on this. (laughs) True. From here on, we'll be playing excerpts from our interview. So grab a bit, take a sip. Oh, good lord. Join us outside our figurative forecastle and listen to the stories they shared given two mics before the mast. Feel free to introduce yourselves, guys. Hello. Hi. You'll have to guess which which one is which. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So, Josh Payne, let's start with you. What's your job title? My job title is a historic shiprigger at San Francisco Maritime National Historic Park. I work on uh, maintaining and um, keeping the rigging operable on the ships that we have in our collection, namely Balclutha, C.A. Thayer and Alma. Uh, We maintain the ship's running rigging and standing rigging on all the vessels. Um, Mm -hmm. We also uh, fabricate the mooring lines and mooring systems that moor the ships to the pier. But our primary focus is the ship's rigging. And we, we make standing rigging, which is the wire uh, that holds the masts and yards up. 
And we also maintain the running rigging on the ships, which is the block and tackles, uh, ropes and lines that you use to uh, manipulate the yards and sails. And it's a it's an endless kind of cycle. You're constantly replacing running rigging and standing rigging, rebuilding blocks, uh, replacing ironwork that's washed up or worn out. And that's pretty much it. Um, and Josh Brown, what is your job title? Um, I believe officially it's uh, C.A. Thayer Shipwright. My job is tied to one boat specifically at the moment, uh, which is little unusual in the park but uh yeah marine carpenter is kind of the more commonly used term today we also employ uh preservation specialists um historic preservation specialists so there's kind of a range of titles you know very modern to um and technical sounding to uh shipwright which if you put on your resume 99 percent of people have no idea what what you do um i recently learned though that uh so a, a right is just an old um, English word, not old English, but a English word for someone that makes some stuff out of wood. Mm-hmm. Those are two different roles though, like shipwright and then ship's carpenter. And if I could do it succinctly, there's a really cool example of um, another, I forget if it was a Bennigsen, but a different lumber schooner um, that was in a gale off the West coast, ended up getting dismasted and the captain and his dog were swept overboard. And because it was a lumber schooner, they had piles and piles of sawn boards. So they like lashed a bunch of them together and made these jury rig masts and then a jury rig rudder that just looks like a big barn door hanging off the back of the thing. And they made it all the way to Hawaii, totally waterlogged, flying the American flag. So they were real proud of themselves. But, you know, on shore, there's trying to take the time you have to do everything you know, really right. And then that role of ship's carpenter is more what Josh gets excited about, which is, um, <laughs> you know, using the available materials to really to just get you home, you know? Yeah. So just to clarify, what is jury rigged? Uh, I was wondering what the, I don't know what the etymology of the jury part is, but um, if part of the rig breaks, you use whatever parts you have on hand to make a replacement. Um, and then, so yeah, a jury rudder is just spiking lashing together any boards you have to make something to hang off the back of the boat to have steerage but you know it's just in a pinch i don't know where the jury where that where that vocab word comes from be a fun internet search kids giving them homework for all you listeners at home (laughs) so josh brown was on the right track all right tell me more Thanks to a fun internet search. You mean Merriam-Webster? I mean, yeah, of course I do. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I know now that jury-rigged is the oldest of three similar phrases. Jerry-rigged, jerry-built, and, of course, jury-rigged. Go on. Well, the original term, jury-rigged, dates back to at least the 1700s. But the two words that comprise it, jury and rig, both date back to the 1400s. Rig, we know, thanks to Josh Payne. Yep, and jury, which as an adjective can mean makeshift or improvised for temporary use, especially in an emergency, comes from the Middle English word jury, which means improvised 
and was used to describe improvised devices on board sailing vessels, such as a jory sail or an improvised sail. Huh, so he really wasn't far off. Not at all, but maybe we are getting a little far from the interview. True. For the next several minutes, we'll hear the Joshas compare the natures of their jobs today with the same jobs from a century ago. We will also hear their stories on how they found themselves working for San Francisco Maritime. Let's get back to the interview. So that kind of leads into another question, which is how do your jobs today differ from the historical roles of riggers and ship's carpenters? Personally, I don't think, in, at least in the rigging department, I don't think it really differs that much. Um, the conditions which the rigging usually takes place under, I guess there's two different, there's like at sea riggers, which would be considered more bosuns for repair and stuff underway, which constantly happens. Things are always breaking and having to be mended and fixed. But um, shoreside riggers, such as I am now, um, the working conditions are probably more or less the same. Um, they, back in the day, they had long rope walks and stuff that would be fairly common seen on the San Francisco waterfront or anywhere for that matter. Um, so those things have gone, but the actual labor itself is very much the same. We don't use power tools. The tools have remained the same for literally thousands of years. Um, so Marlin spike is one, which is just a metal long spike. Um, and that's used for splicing wire and rope, but primarily wire and also helping bang on things when they're too rusted to get open. <laughs> um, and, uh, the other tools, which have also remained the same for thousands of years are a stick with a hole in it that we use to put seizings on that's called a seizing stick. And it's literally just a stick about a foot and a half long with a hole on the end that you run the wire through and this enables you to lay on or clap on seizings extremely tight and the other tool is a serving mallet and the serving mallet is uh, how you wrap the twine tightly around standing rigging to protect it from weather and elements so in the sense of the tools we use it's almost identical to what they used back in the day yeah, and the, even the environment we work in at the park is more or less the same. We work on the ships, sometimes above decks, um, sometimes below, but uh, virtually identical to the way it would have been in the 1800s or 1700s, or even before then, for that matter. So Josh's job is quite different, I think, with the adaptation of power tools and stuff like that. But I'll let him talk about that. <laughs> yeah, let's see. In terms of tools, um, yeah, we do use a lot of, um, you know, electric-powered tools and um and even cordless ones today. We do have the benefit that um, a lot of the bigger machinery and uh, hand tools, you know, to accomplish the work are, are really the exact same as they were in the late 1800s. Um, Cause they were, you know, well into a industrial period, you know, they had a, a huge array of specialized, specialized tools like gasoline or, you know, steam powered planers and band saws, um, but the, you know, the business end of a, of a plane, that just sharp edge shaving off a piece of wood or the tip of a drill bit, tip of a chisel um, is, still the, is still the same. Um, it just uh, might not require quite as much, quite as much muscle anymore. <laughs> so, uh, 
you know, I think we tend to romanticize all this uh, uh, handwork. Um, I certainly don't envy, you know, the folks that drilled every fastening hole in Thayer's hole by hand. Um, but, um, you know, as Josh said, a, a lot, really the, the, the set of um, tools are arsenal. Um, you know, it's improved somewhat, but they're not really so different. What about the work environment? Do you think that's changed at all? Or? Yeah, I, I was thinking about that um, quite a bit this last week. So um, I think, you know, fundamentally today it's different where, you know, we have the benefit of, of um, really doing, you know, painstaking work um, and taking our time when presumably, you know, on a, on a sand spit up in Northern California when they were making these, this boat Thayer commercially or, you know, Glasgow where, where Balclutha was built, um, you know, there was a lot more onus to work quickly, work hard, um, or lose your job. Um, but, uh, you know, one thing I'm pretty sure of is that in like the 1890s, 1880s, these shipwrights or riggers, um, you know, they weren't thinking about keeping their work authentic to a given, you know, time or place. They were just trying to build a boat to do a purpose. So, you know, we're today, we're trying to preserve these 100, 130 year old historic ships in like this static, stable state, which like completely throws a wrench into the whole works of what would be a, a much simpler job. It's easy to, to forget. They were designed to last, you know, a handful of decades. So if they were going to be repaired, they'd be repaired in the most practical manner. And, you know, they'd only be repaired so long as they could be made profitable again. So they were, they were modified, they were adapted to suit each new job and just put together, you know, good enough. Massive alterations were, you know, the norm, not the exception. And today, anyway, we're still sort of doing the same thing but we're adapting the ship to a new job and that that new job is to stay exactly the same as her original state in perpetuity. Yeah. And I think you've both spoken to in the past, how adaptations to your jobs and changes to your jobs are still in line with the nature of the historic role. Josh, you said something Josh Brown, sorry, uh, you said something about how using power tools is still in line with that historic carpenter job because they would have used any tool available to them to get the job done, <laughs> right? Yeah, that, huh, that's, that's, that's a funny, if um, maybe even a touchy subject for some. Um, people sometimes <laughs> want to, if they see the you know preservation work in progress, they want to point out that you know, you're lucky to have power tools and, or that's not how they would have done it back in the day. And there's kind of a justification for using more modern tools, uh, which is shipwrights and boatwrights would have used any and all tools at their, their disposal to accomplish the task at hand. Um, for instance, a laser level is an incredible, amazing gadget that you can figure out if, you know, things are in a straight line and um, using one doesn't fundamentally alter the appearance of your work in the end but we do you know want to carefully make sure that they aren't influencing the end appearance um there's a buzzword in preservation called evidence of tradecraft so you know we might use um power tools or even you know a chainsaw to rough out a big part 
but then uh, the finished work will still might come down to using a chisel or a, a you know a hand plane or an ad. So, you know, we'll try to leave those ads marks, chisel marks in the end, and not remove those uh, those traces of, of the work. I think uh, one of the primary differences between, like, say, using a power tool or an ads or a power player and ads or something like that would be that I think yards back in the day that were building these ships, like they had 20 or 30 guys building the ship at the same time. So there was 20 or 30 guys using bit braces and ads and stuff opposed to what we have on the pier now, which is Josh Brown. <laughs> and my, and my, and my, and my fellow coworkers in my department. Yes. Yeah. 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 So I think you could, if you had those 30 more guys, then you could revert to using bit and braces and ads and stuff like that and have it be a more authentic construction. But with one guy or two guys or three guys, whatever it may be, this, the possibility of keeping up with the deteriorating ship is just, well, it's just not possible. It's like stuff would rot out from under you before you could actually get to it. So uh, power tools, I think help with this a lot. Well, that sounds, that sounds to me like this would be a good time to get more people interested in being one of Josh Brown's 30 new guys to work with or yeah. <laughs> 30 guys to work with Josh Payne. So unless there are other things you want to explain about your job, maybe we can talk a bit about how you got into these jobs in the first place. What drew you to them? I'm going to defer to Josh Payne again and see where he goes with this because I'm awfully confused on this subject. Yeah. <laughs> okay, well, I guess uh, how I got into the job is uh, it's kind of a two-part answer. And I think Josh will probably have a similar answer to some part of it is that um, one, I really appreciate history. I like old things. Everything I own is like old. I appreciate old craftsmanship and old tools, old machines. Like there's a simplicity to them that I understand that I don't get with modern equipment. Um, and then there's one thing in history that I really like and what has fascinated me is like the construction of like the pyramids or, you know, the druids that move the stones, the Stonehenge or the, Inca and Mayan people that move these amazing loads with, you know, rocks and I mean, massive, like if you've been to Egypt, like you just see these stones that are like the size of a school bus, you know, and they had no power tools. All they had is a lot of people and some rope. So that process of moving enormous loads, like extreme distances in some case, you know, Rapa Nui or Easter Island, you know, how did they walk these things to where they were going? How did these people accomplish these like literally monumental tasks with no machines? And the answer is rigging. I mean, to drag a stone, stone at Stonehenge, my theory is that they dug a deep hole, they stuck a tree in it, they drilled some holes in the tree and put bars like a capstan wound a rope around it, tied it to the rock, and then just spun it, you know? So there you have a primitive pulley, a capstan. So that part of history I appreciate. I grew up in Colorado, so there's not many ships and boats in Colorado at all. And I moved to New York from Colorado with the hopes of getting an art job someplace. 
when I was in New York, I was walking around um, the waterfront and uh, I stopped by the South Street Seaport, which is uh, home to the Wavertree in Peking. And uh, there was a guy on a schooner there sitting on deck and he was doing some rope splicing and just kind of like hanging out, smoking cigarettes and drinking coffee. And I figured, boy, that would be a nice job to have. So anyways, I, I asked the guy um, what it would take to get a job there. And he said, oh, I don't know. What do you know? And, and I said, well, I can, I'm a pretty good carpenter. I can weld. I can build a lot of stuff. And then he said, well, the guy over on the ship there on the waiver tree, which is um, very similar to Balcuthi, he said, they're looking for some help over there. And uh, for two years, I did a rigging apprenticeship there on the waiver tree with a master rigger named Jim Barry. And he taught me the ropes, so to speak. I'd never been on a boat before. I had never sailed before. I had, coming from Colorado, I had nothing to do with the water, but it seemed like kind of a fun place to be. So it was just me and this other rigger on the ship. And um, he taught me the trade of how to do wire splicing, wire seizings, how to make masts, how to build and maintain blocks. We did the whole gamut there because they were working on upriggering waiver tree at the time. And uh, then I started to get uh, thinking, well, boy, if I know so much about rigging, I should probably learn how to go sailing and use the rigging. So I signed on Europa and that was the trip of a lifetime. I sailed from San Diego to Easter Island. Then we rounded Cape Horn, went to the Falklands. We sailed Antarctica, Africa, Europe, uh, all the way up into the Great Lakes. I mean, it was a little more than a year and a half, almost two years of working on that. And um, that experience really informed like how rig is supposed to work and the limitations of the rigging and the materials that you were working with. And so I did that for a couple years, sailed on schooners, square riggers, all that stuff. But in the back of my head, I always knew that I liked rigging better. I always like building the ships more than sailing them. It was a nice gratification when everything was all done. It was up and it looked beautiful and it was a functional piece of art. It seems that you moved to New York for an art job and ended up in one in a way that you may not have expected. Yeah, no, I had no intention of working on boats, but uh, I mean, when you look at them, I mean, who wouldn't want to work on one of those things? So. Uh, it was in the sunshine and uh, yeah, there was a certain art quality to it and I like old stuff. So how about you, Josh? How'd you do that? That was fascinating, Josh. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> oh, yeah, no, my, mine's going to be worse, man. I was sort of nodding my head when Payne said that he had no intention of working on ships. Um, I liked, I really liked reading, I ended up studying history. So I, I liked reading about these earlier eras of, you know, industrial history, uh, labor history. Um, I could get really interested in reading about events and people in the past. Um, but, you know, even if you read fiction or just watch movies, it's, it's one thing that to, to, to see it or hear it described, but you don't really, can't really understand those circumstances unless you're, you know, actually just trying to participate. Anyway, I, I ended up, uh, I took a lot of time off, off from college and I didn't really have a plan but I had some family in Maine. So I headed up there and kind of found a family friend that ran a um, wilderness canoe tripping camp. They used all wood canvas canoes, white cedar um, ribs or uh, red cedar planking. So native local species, 
with a cotton skin on them. Both the the construction method and the um, and the shapes of those boats were all closely derived from um, native Passamaquoddy native group. Um, yeah, I was essentially the maintenance person, but he was a he was a really good teacher and mentor, and was kind of uniquely trusting of young people. If something needed fixing, even if it was a thirty year old canoe, um, which is kind of a precious object, you know, he didn't we didn't he didn't have the resources to do it all himself. So he was willing to let young people like me take a crack at that, completely mess things up, do things wrong, uh, learn the hard way. But, you know, he provided a lot of positive reinforcement. So that that was kind of my window into that world. So, yeah, I did a little stand up in Seattle in northern Washington at the Center for Wooden Boats, which is a little great little museum up there. And was ostensibly supposed to be tracking volunteer hours or something but luckily I got like the good boss again, who was more into just actively using the replica boats we had at our disposal. So he kind of just told me to forget everything I was doing and just rent boats. And when they got banged up on rocks or the beach to put them back together again, um, I had a little commercial job in Portland building a cold molded or like plywood veneer and um, fiberglass boats. I liked that all right for a bit. I didn't really see the sun all winter because it was an indoor shop. So I was itching to get back outdoors um, and ended up coming down to San Francisco, desperately seeking work <laughs> and just kind of found my way to the pier because that's where the boats were. was able to find some gigs repairing boats at the pier used for kids programs and kind of worked my way up, you know, getting more and more higher responsibility haul outs on some of the collection boats. But yeah, actually, like like Josh, I only spent one, um, I'm kind of a landlubber, I only spent one summer fishing in Alaska because that seemed like it'd be a great adventure and, you know, it was something that a lot of the, the writers I liked had gone and done. It was, um, and I learned that I really, that I really didn't like that very much. For, if I get four hours of sleep a night, I become a deeply resentful individual. So there's a lot of, yeah, yeah, natural beauty. It, it sounds really romantic, but uh, my... I didn't take to it or I was one and done as a kind of a, a insulting way to characterize someone like me. <laughs> but yeah, I figured I, I would, I did, you know, stick to the shore side with, you know, regular working hours. You can go home at night and you can kind of have contact with all the, the glory and lore, but not actually have to participate in it yourself. Both Joshes might not be sailing any tall ships today, but they do have a lot of contact with the quote-unquote glory and lore that come with these vessels. Later, we will hear more about how this affects their jobs. But before that, the Joshes get into how and where their jobs intersect and what they find fun and fulfilling about work on the pier. Let's listen to the next segment, which starts with Josh Brown describing how and physically where his job intersects with Josh Payne's. Yeah, um, I mean, there's a there's sort of a line at the deck mm-hmm. where we have to um, separate our two departments. Back in the day, they would have, they like to say, you know, they could build a boat in about six months and they'd rig it in six weeks. But the rigging work distinctly would happen after <laughs> the ship was built. Mm-hmm. Um, so really, you have two separate, crews there that hopefully one of them is going to get out of the way so that if someone's working aloft, we're not in any 
line where something could be dropped on us. Um, and then there's the there's kind of the unfortunate fact of life that the rigors are above um, all the work that I do. So everything they drop or drip ends up on my stuff, but anything I drop or drip doesn't go up onto their stuff. So it's this one way street of um, the opportunity to screw up someone else's hard <laughs> one gains uh, that puts his odds. Um, we usually maintain some pretty good humor about it. Um, but, you know, we, if I'm making a part, you know, off of Lloyd's insurance records and a captain's drawings to, you know, they don't call out all the specific details. They call out general dimensions and lengths. So for some of those, they'll interact with the rig in a functional way and they won't jam up or chafe a line through. You know, we have to ask the riggers, hey, how's this going to function? What are the ferrule leads? You know, we need that expertise of someone that knows how it's going to be hung up in the sky. It's important to have people that are rigging, downrigging, uprigging, and have sailed on these ships before to be able to tell us exactly, you know, what's that part going to do? How strong does it need to be in this dimension? You know, what kind of forces, what kind of destructive <laughs> entropy is it going to be subject to up in the rig? I think that's, that's about, that's as much as we interact or forced to interact pain you want to well i mean the way i look at it is is this okay so you have the, the hull of the ship and then on top of that you've got the mass and spars and i kind of consider those like the uh, the skeletal system of the rig mm -hmm. and then standing rigging and running rigging is the the ligaments and tendons of the machine mm -hmm. or the body and then the sails are and the canvas are kind of like the muscle. You can't have the ship function if you take away one of those systems. So the, the rigging kind of just translates the power of the wind and the pressure and the forces used against the sail to the masts, which then translate it down to the ship's hull. Once you sail on them, on these boats, you can really understand like how and see physically how they work together. But the reality is that in sailing, especially on square riggers when the rigs are just huge, there needs to be a lot of movement in this. So the, the spars and masts have their own strength. Um, they flex, that's the beauty of wood, and even steel too. Um, the rigging needs to be able to accept that flex because if it's too tight, the mast itself is not taking any of the load, it's all on the rig. So mm -hmm. you have to have all this stuff work together to kind of get the full power of the rig. So I would say that's where our jobs intersect. It is like this culmination of spars, rigging, and canvas that all make the machine work. Yeah, I was, I was saying to Josh the other day, it's easy to think you build a hole, you put a rig on it. But, you know, from a design standpoint, whether it's a square rigger or a tiny little uh, dinghy, you know, you start with what sail do you want on it? That determines the rig. That determines, you know, how much the hull wants to return to a level position in the water. Um, basically, the, the rig determines, to a large extent, the hull shape. So they're really designed from the top down. They're only built from the keel up. The, the, the hulls are amazing in and of themselves. But, uh, you know, in my mind, a, a barge is, is kind of a boring, inanimate object. <laughs> it's fun to see the how far you can take materials, you know, and how far you can push them to their limits. In the shipwright industry and in rigging industry, 
you are pushing those materials to the limits, you know, like how far you can bend a plank before it breaks or how much load can a line take before it breaks. And the truth of the matter is that you never really know until you break it. I'm an advocate of, in a lot of ways of pushing things till they break, not in a unsafe manner, but in a controlled experiment, because more often than not, these materials are far stronger and the machines that you're using are far stronger than you think they are. And their capabilities far exceed what you think is yeah. possible sometimes. And that's always that sense of awe when you get done with it, you're like, wow, I thought that line would have broke a long time ago, but it didn't. So that then informs you and decisions you make further down the road. And yeah, I think that, that that ties into the, I mean, that that's what like being good at any of these, tr especially traditional trades, because it's more experience based and just know how versus like, you know, engineered or data driven. Yeah, you can't go on Google and Google that stuff like you only can experience it and speak with it with any kind of like authority when the problem comes up again, you know, so. Yeah, there's there's a humility there, too, and that like. I think anybody that's good at these specific trades, I like to think like that's the person that has seen this go sideways more than anybody else. Like they've messed this up in every conceivable way. So that going into task, my process is kind of like, okay, here are the four ways that this is going to go really wrong. How I'm going to destroy the part, destroy an expensive machine or hurt myself. And there's always like a fifth thing out there that is going to get you. I think pretty quickly you learn from more experienced people that like you can have a crack at something and mess it up and learn from that and do it again and it'll work the second time and then it better work the third time or <laughs> but you know yeah all experience comes from mishaps and <laughs> yeah i would agree with that yeah yeah we digressed a lot but i like it so whose job is cooler mine for sure um I think uh, maybe instead of saying whose job is cooler, um, mm -hmm. the question could be, what are some of the most fun and interesting parts of your job? There we go. Then it's not adversarial. Yeah. Yeah, mine's workflow. Great. <laughs> um, actually, wait, there is something very cool about like these objects, like Thayer is, you know, National Historic Landmark. She's now the last of her kind. And, you know, when I was in Seattle, she had a sister ship, the Wawona, which is besides a few major parts was the exact same ship. And those were the last two. And I was there for Wawona getting broken up. So these, these objects, they're, you know, they're kind of precious and intimidating, even if it's just a small rowboat, that's say a replica, not an actual historic artifact if someone already put so much effort into building the thing to say that, yeah, I, I know how to fix that and, and be willing to cut a hole in it, remove parts of it and guarantee people that I'm going to be able to put it back as it was, you know, it's at first intimidating, but, and then it just becomes sort of like a privilege. Like yeah, every now and then if I'm just having a normal work day where I'm just kind of grinding or a little tired or whatnot, every now and then I'll run a decision by one of my supervisors and they'll approve my plan. And I'm just kind of reminded, like, that's right. I'm trusted to do things to this uh, historic object. And um, I've built up the confidence to do it and not be intimidated by it. Um, so there's some status there. There's some glory there. 
Sabrina. And? You and I are part of the interpretive department. The park staff with those recognizable flat hats and shiny badges who give tours and answer visitor questions. Like, how old are the ships? Do these boats still move? Is that a pirate ship? And where's the bathroom? <laughs> those are indeed the most frequent, if not most important, questions we get. <laughs> and when we do give tours, we usually talk about where a ship fits within a larger historical narrative which can often involve dispelling a lot of lore about tall ships. Not all tall ships are pirate ships. Mm -hmm. Well, maybe only in the movies. Mostly. <laughs> and our ship tours usually last 45 minutes. So we don't often have the opportunity to dive deeply into the technical specifications of the vessel itself. Thankfully, interpreters are not the only staff that visitors interact with. And those 45-minute tours aren't the only times visitors can have their questions answered. So, we asked the Joshes about how lore affects their jobs, as well as some of their favorite interactions with visitors. And here's what they had to say. Boy, that's again is kind of an embarrassing thing when you talk about the romance of working on boats. Um, I could talk about it. Yeah, There's... okay. Go ahead, please. Oh, I was going to say as a general... There's, there is, you know, a lot of, you know, romance and lore and glory that people imagine working on these boats, which no doubt is there. I won't try to disabuse someone of their, you know, fantasies about the age of sail and um, the adventures. But, I, you know, for every, I figure for every writer that went out like, you know, Jack London or, um, I don't know, rattle off some other um, writers. Henry Dana. Yeah. For every writer that signed on or for every sailor that ended up writing something about it, who felt inspired and was enjoying themselves. I figure there were 50 other laborers that had some heart, amazing skills and could keep themselves and their crewmates alive. You know, the smaller coastal boats we have, you had the chance of getting home every couple of weeks, maybe, or months. But it wasn't uncommon for like Valclutha on a, going around the horn to lose like at least a, one sailor um, I think that was fairly typical is maybe you lose somebody. It's, uh, you know, it's a, a story of abuse and hardship. And well, that, that's more the sailing end of it. But I think yeah. um, what we do, I don't think has those kind of dangers that you, you do when you're underway at sea. But uh, we encounter that kind of stuff in the rig more than Josh would on deck. But it's nothing like sailing around Cape Horn. Yeah. No, I think, yeah, a, a, a job in a boatyard on the coast of California or Oregon, you know, in the 1800s doesn't sound like too terrible a gig to me, you know. You know, a lot of them were somewhere near towns and they went home at night. Well, and I guess I, why that question came to mind for me is you, we definitely get it as interpreters. Like, wow, these ships went around Cape Horn. We're like, yeah, and also the labor practices were really bad. Can we tell you about that? And you're like, but we didn't want to learn. Like, don't talk to us about history. We wanted to live a little bit in our fantasy. Um, yeah, the um, Pirates of the Caribbean era was kind of rough when we had just droves of pirates showing up at the pier <laughs> looking for Johnny Depp, and they found Josh Payne instead. <laughs> <laughs>
Yeah, I think the um, when you when you talk about that kind of stuff, it's easy to dramatize the lifestyles and you know how these guys must have lived while they were sailing around and doing these jobs. Mm-hmm. But, um, I wish the park would focus more on, you know, like on Balkutha. I mean, everybody looks down below and oh, the China gang and life must have been terrible in the forecastle or look at the conditions they had to sleep in, but nobody talks about the vast machine that's above their head. And I think it's primarily because nobody understands it. I mean, talk about like, you know, they didn't have any engines. There's no engine on that ship. You know, it's like you look up and there's, you know, 13 stories of engine above you, you know? Right. So, I mean, I would find it much more interesting if they actually illustrated, you know, how the machine works, you know? How many guys does it take to brace a yard? Like what was the task involved in manipulating these huge loads and sails like underway? Like how do you wear a ship? Like how do you turn the ship? You know, like how do you tack a square rigger while you're underway? Um, I would hope that those kind of conversations could be had more on the pier because you have everything there to illustrate it. Yeah, that's fair. And it's, it's, always an interesting thing when you go to a national park or a museum uh, and especially a national historical park where you expect history to be the only thing that you learn and you get to the pier and you have so much science and math and technology at play constantly. The other thing I think yeah, in, 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 hold on Josh um, yeah. uh, the other thing I think is like I just thought of this, like the sailors and the people that worked on these ships, like they're not there anymore. You know, they're just ghosts. There's actually no sailors on the pier that actually work on those ships. But what is there is the hardware. What is there is the ships. Like I said, that's all that's represented there already. You just have to tell them how it works. And it's like, oh, that's how it works. But if you can wax poetic about all the old times you want, because there's nobody there to (laughs) tell you different. Yeah, no, it's fantastic when when we do have like experiential programming going on or when Alma's out. It's one thing to, yeah, you can read in a book what a block and tackle does. But, you know, the first time a kid or even, a, I don't know, adults come down and raise sail and pull on a line and, and you see that I got to pull more, but it's less weight. You know, you can see that there's this intuitive understanding of what goes on that you can't really get unless you get your hands on the machinery and feel, you know. Yeah. And I mean, traditionally, your jobs wouldn't get a lot of contact with an inquiring public. But when Hyde Street Pier is open, you must get so many questions because you're in full view of visitors pretty much the entire time. Um, Do either both of you have any favorite or memorable visitor questions that come to mind? Um. Well, they say there's no such thing as a stupid question, right? So you do get some, I'll say, silly questions, not stupid. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the gamut of like, is this boat really floating? Or how do you get <laughs> look so old? Or, um, I mean, I guess the the questions aren't so comical or whatever. To me. I mean, like I said, coming from Colorado, not knowing anything about boats, you can't hold that against them to ask these kind of silly questions. So now I just look at them all as good questions and... Um, the, the thing I get the biggest kick out of is the answers to the questions um, are usually so full of technical lingo <laughs> that the looks you see on the people's faces as I'm giving the answer to like, oh, how do you get that mast all the way up to the top without using a crane? 
more often than not, you have to have the stuff set up that you're talking about so you can have physical examples of what you're talking about. And then it goes back to that kind of that aha moment of the visitor puts two and two together, sees how the mechanics of it works. Um, yeah, I was going to object to the question um, right <laughs> out the gate. No, I mean, that visitor contact part of it where it's kind of striking like you know we the park has a really pretty impressive um, collection of historic photos being that a lot of our boats are from like the tail end of the age of sail we have the benefit of people were taking photos um, in the time of these ships construction so what's funny about them though is that a lot of those photos even even if it's just of a shipyard there's oftentimes a lot of um you know victorian onlookers that are there on the waterfront of san francisco or even even you know in these remote places like Eureka, California, there'll be a couple of people standing around in top hats or whatever that obviously aren't yard employees. There'll be you know women in dresses and dogs, and so I think we get today the same. I think there was always kind of a spectacle to shipbuilding, you know, whether it's in Glasgow where they were like churning out these ever bigger leviathan you know steel and iron ships and steamers at that point even or you know san francisco docks that had just like this teeming boomtown international trade going on or fairhaven where they were making wooden boats in the forest practically in the you know before the last century now <laughs> um mm -hmm. you know at that point wooden sailing ships were like a anachronism they were like the last of their kind yeah there was a spectacle and a, and a reverence for it then too um that, that these were like great accomplishments and human effort um so and i think that i think that sentiment's still alive like the, the question will get i like a lot i'll remind myself i like the question a lot is just like how many people sailed this thing you know and whether it's tall ship like uh Balclutha, i don't know if it's 25 30 josh could correct me oh, more than 30. Um, people yeah or you know a, a coast-wise schooner like thayer is you know six to eight people because they were trying to save on labor and making these easier to handle ships but in any case it's just incredible that a handful a small group of people could control this just huge array of machinery and lines and so, yeah, you, I mean, you really just need to get out on a deck of a, a boat to appreciate it. But in terms of constructing them, it's sort of the same thing where, you know, anybody that's built a birdhouse um, or a house for that matter can look around at one of these ships and just appreciate. I mean, if you count the fastenings, if you look at how much time it would take to complete one of these vessels, it, it's just sheer, you know, it's, it's momentum and the number of people all doing their little bit to achieve this kind of impossible goal. So it, yeah, I think it, if you step on, on board and you look at this, these things that people can create through, you know, sheer will and, and ingenuity, it kind of gives you a, a different impression of what, what we do in the world as the weird animals that we are. Mm -hmm. That kind of reminds me of something um, Josh Payne said earlier uh, when he was comparing rigging like the system to how people build pyramids and Stonehenge it's like we can't see we can't go to Egypt or watch people build the pyramid but people can actually go to Hyde Street Pier and watch how the machinery can still work right mm -hmm. yeah very much so yeah I wish we did more of that yeah. stuff. 
Yeah, I, I'd say we're in a way we're kind of a at, at our best. The peer can be kind of a lab to understand that kind of thing. You know, we'll, we can consult literature, historic records, shipping records. And it won't be until we actually get that part in its place on deck and in use that we'll, you know, we'll have this kind of collective aha moment of like, oh, that's how they did it. You know, that's why this is a lot of things won't immediately make sense or they'll seem sort of counterintuitive until you try them out and get them back in their historic context. And we'll have this little window back into the way that people thought and designed things and worked a hundred odd years ago. So, Anne, what have you learned today? Oh, so much. We're going to have to bother ships more often, I think. Isn't that supposed to constitute sufficient warning? <laughs> I hope so. But you know what? This conversation really made me think of the ship of Theseus. Is that in our collection? I'll look it up. I'm kidding. Oh, boy. <laughs> You're referring to the thought experiment called the ship of Theseus, which asks a question inspired by Greek mythology. Mm-hmm. Briefly, the question is, if, over the course of its life, every board on a ship is replaced, is it still the same ship? That sounds like something we should have asked the Joshes. Something we can encourage all our listeners, visitors, and co-workers to think about. Speaking of visitors, we should probably get off our bits and back to work. Aye, aye, park guide. Hoo boy. <laughs> well, thanks for listening, everyone, and join us next time for another episode of Two Mics Before the Mast. Josh is going to sing a shanty to kick things off. Uh, we need some like hero music in the background. Like... <laughs> it's actually going to be that because we're recording. So. <laughs> <laughs> All right. <laughs>